BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Diversity Remix, only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. Today's episode, The Continued Trump Effect on Culture. Do pastors and faith leaders need to own their political ideology to lead their flocks? Or should they check their party preferences at the door? And in this week's Courage or Cringe, Amanda Gorman lost in translation, Pepe Le Pew Le Cancelled? And Coming to America 2, not coming to Paramount+. Plus. Should black artists only be interpreted by other black people because of their unique shared experience? Or is assigning work on any level due to race just another name for racism? Can actors demand editorial control over projects if their requests accord with popular political opinions? Or are editorial decisions always best left unencumbered? And finally, was Paramount Plus's decision to sell the Coming to America sequel to their competitor evidence of short-sighted economic reasoning or evidence of racial insensitivity? This and much more this week on TDR. Fun show today, this week, Jesus? Yeah, we got a fun one. It's almost like, you know, we found ourselves not a couple of times where we had to like part twos of some of these topics. We should. And uh, this is one of them, right? We're going to get into um, that continued you know, Trump effect, especially on evangelical Christians. And that's one that we covered we touched you know, a few on episodes it. back. Yep. Um, and you can see how some of these stories are going to continue to sort of evolve, right? And, and I think it's good to, uh, to talk through them. The coffee table book for 2021 being written. The 2020 coffee table book is seven inches thick, just so you know, but the 2021 one is still being written, and I'm sure that will be a continuing theme. I did want to um, take this opportunity, because I've forgotten the last few times, to remind people to subscribe. If you're listening to this episode, just please hit subscribe. It turns out, as we're been, as we've been finding out, Jesus, right, that a number of people will stream and listen, and yeah. they don't subscribe, and in fact, the ratio between streaming and downloading is another thing. There's like a whole equation here. For w- figuring things out. Yeah, I found myself a couple of different times at little, um, like speaking to the individuals, like, oh, yeah, I love you guys' podcast, but um, I haven't uh, subscribed to it. And I'm having to, like, actually do it for, there for them. I, so, do, I do that every chance I ask get. Ask a friend, ask a relative if you're not sure how to do it. Well, and the thing about it is, is when you subscribe, right, it brings the next episode up into your yeah. queue. You've got it there. Um, I use Google Podcasts as my player. And I can tell you, I never download episodes. I only always stream, but I do try to remember to subscribe to the ones that I like because I, I want it to kind of 
come in the top of the of the ones that you know to listen to. And in order for you to do that, you just got to hit the little subscribe button, irrespective of where you listen. The other thing that mm-hmm. uh, that I think is worth mentioning is, uh, by the way, like today, I think two of the three courage or cringe topics that we're covering are topics that were recommended to us by by individuals, by, by different listeners. People. Yeah, so. Uh, We'll we get have into to do that. that. Yeah, we definitely like encourage people to let us know, reach out. Uh, you can go to blackbrown.us um, or you know reach out to us individually on LinkedIn. Um, either way, uh, let us know. The the one on Paramount Plus, uh, David Ortiz, who was a guest of ours, that's right, uh, about four episodes ago, I guess, mm-hmm. around there, mentioned that. And and frankly, I hadn't really thought about it until you brought it up, and I thought it was a really good one for us to discuss in this. Uh, in this episode. And the second one came from a uh, shout out to JR from the poker tournament. There you uh, go. This weekend. He was like, you got to talk about this one. I was like, all right, well, let me look at it. It seemed right up our alley. So here we are. Yeah. The other thing that I wanted to make mention of Jesus, very important, is we now have a Patreon page for this podcast. And you can go to patreon.com backslash the diversity remix. And you can support our work there. It takes, you know, time, obviously, to put the show together, Jesus, but it also takes takes money, takes capital yep. to put all this stuff together. Equipment, especially with my crazy demands for how lustrous the sound must be. Like, exactly. I'm not going to be satisfied until the episodes sound like they've been dipped in milk chocolate or like liquid gold <laughs> or something like that. And all of that costs money. So if you feel so, um, you know, moved to support our work, you can do that by going again to patreon.com backslash the diversity remix. We'll also have that in the show notes. And we'll talk more about this stuff in upcoming episodes, but that allows us to devote more time to preparing for the episode, uh, tracking down guests, um, all the you know attendant press uh, prep work, marketing of the shows, mm-hmm. etc. So again, patreon.com backslash the diversity remix. Um, and uh, yeah, that's going to be an ongoing feature of this show. So all right. That's the uh, housekeeping out of the way, Jesus. We've got, like I said, a lot of interesting stuff on the Courage and Cringe docket. But before we get there, we've got an interesting deep dive to tackle. And it's all about Mr. Trump. Yeah. So this is, as mentioned, this is a topic we previously covered while discussing rep, uh, Representative Adam Kissinger, right, who was an evangelical Republican who voted for both impeachment and also questioned the impact that Trump had had on the, on the church itself. He's right? from Arkansas, Oklahoma? Illinois. 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 Yeah, yeah. Yeah, not um, even close. Yeah, Good job. No, Good neither, job, Charlie. Neither one. Got a C in geography. Uh, there was a recent story by the New York Times about Beth Moore, who is a prominent evangelical who has mm-hmm. decided to leave the Southern Baptist Convention, citing that staggering disorientation of seeing its leaders support Mr. Trump and the cultural and spiritual fallout from the sport. Now, an incident which continues to raise you know, the issue of the impact and fallout brought on by this close alignment between white evangelicals and former President Trump. We mentioned this before. There was about 81% of white evangelicals who voted for Trump in 2020, according to exit polls. And it was also very high support in 2016 as well. But of course, not everyone has been happy about this, right? So in an interview with Religion News Service, Ms. Moore said, there comes a time when you have to say, this is not who I am. She also said, I'm still a Baptist, but I can no longer identify with Southern Baptists. Now, according to the Times piece, Ms. Moore is not a traditional leader of the Southern Baptist Convention. She does not lead a church, as she is a woman, and the Southern Baptist Convention reserves the office of head of pastor for men. But she arguably wields deeper loyalty and more influence than many of the men often called on as spokesmen for evangel- evangelicalism. Now, her departure and stature in the movement posed a serious challenge to the Southern Baptist Convention, which was already embroiled in some, for, for years in debates about just about Mr. Trump, about racism, misogyny, and the handling of sexual abuse cases. And just like most other organized religions here in the U.S., his membership has been in decline. Now, her issues with the SBC has been many and growing. 
And in many ways, were actually sparked by the election of former President Trump, right? So she described the election of 2016 as a turning point, began speaking out after the Access Hollywood tapes uh, that were released just weeks before the election that captured Mr. Trump bragging about forcing himself on, on women. In 2018, she published a letter to her, and I quote, brothers in Christ, sharing her bruising experiences with sexism as a female leader in the conservative Christian world. She has also denounced Christian nationalism, the demonic stronghold of white supremacy and the sexism and misogyny that is rampant in segments of the SBC. She often spoke, to, spoke out against widespread sexual abuse in the denomination and the reluctance of churches to face it and has been publicly supportive of other critical conservative evangelicalism from within, right? Mm-hmm. So an example of this was like that of Mr. Tisby, who's the president of the Black Christian Collective, who is part of a campaign uh, called hashtag love, leave loud to tell the stories of black Christians leaving evangelical spaces, right? Now, there was a quote here that really caught my attention, which I think kind of captures a lot of these issues, which I want to obviously talk about. And it was from Lisa Sharon Harper, the president of Freedom Road.us, a, a, a Christian justice group. And she said, women of color were the first to see it, then men of color, and now white women are starting to wake up. So... A lot on this one, and, and we frankly did not get into a lot of the additional detail that, that was brought up in this article. But, mm-hmm. you know, as it relates to not just it's, it's not so much about Miss Moore leaving, but sort of the if, do you think this is a, a moment of, you know, that canary in the coal mine moment of, of a larger movement of, of really evangelical Christians having to reconcile this unwavering support of Trump? And the impact that it's having was with, with definitely their congregation, especially for those, and maybe in this case now even white women that are not feeling anymore the, the type of alignment that maybe they felt before yeah i do and what does that mean overall yeah. right for the for the for that faith i don't i don't know this particular lady obviously the the protestant world as we've talked about before and even the evangelical world within it is a very broad space and i don't know all of the players uh in it but she's a person of significant influence and note yeah. in the southern baptist convention which is one of the different uh permutations or branches of Baptist of the yeah. Baptist uh, tradition in the U.S., so she definitely draws a lot of water, and it's a big deal that she's deciding to move on from the entire, right? Basically, her religious affiliation, really. Although she's still a Christian, obviously, and she says she's still a Baptist, it's almost like saying, um, "What's a, what's a good example of of what this is equivalent to?" It's not going to be a really good analogy, but it's almost like you know, you still like college football, but you're no longer. You know, a Bruin. Well, it's, it's not even a political or, party. Like someone that was, you know, lifelong Republican or, or Democrat, all of a yeah. sudden saying they become liberal or go the other, you know, the other direction altogether. Yeah, but there's also this kind of heart component to it as well, where some of the political things can be very like brainy. You know what I mean? Oh, there's a yeah, little yeah, bit yeah. of that yeah, kind true. of heart component to it. That, I, that anyway, but there's neither neither of those maybe. And in exact. a very public manner, that's very the other public, thing about yeah. this that is also very you know I, you know eye raising or, or eyebrow raising in terms of how she's going about doing it. I think that her quote about there's been a disorienta- disorientation due to Trump, I think she's right about that. Mm. I think that, you know, that the evangelical contingent, broadly speaking, loved a lot of the love they got from Trump, right, in terms Mm -hmm. of his appeals to them, the fact that he was always talking a pretty good game in terms of family values. He he definitely did and talked a lot about the pro-life movement, which is a major, major issue um, for evangelicals and, you know, more broadly than that, but certainly for evangelicals. And but the stuff that she objected to, the Access Hollywood thing, um, the materialism, the kind of power sort mm-hmm. of personality of, of Trump are things that I would hope that most people of goodwill who are Christians or call themselves Christians would also view as not really in accord with what they believe, right? So mm-hmm. like, look, and we start from the standpoint of as being Christians that everybody's flawed, 
right? We all have, we're all sinners. We all have brokenness, but we can also look at the ideal, right? And the person of Jesus and say, this is, this is kind of what we should be like. What we're striving for. What we're striving for. Exactly. And in that case, those things, when they came up, should say, hey, this is not in accord with Trump. Now, by the way, that's separate than saying that because of that, he's disqualified, right? You can, I believe, as a person of goodwill, still say, well, despite that, I believe that he's the better candidate. Now, you may be wrong, sure, but I believe you have the right to be wrong and still say that. But it is difficult for me to imagine why, how people can turn a blind eye to those things, right? Like just pretend that they don't exist, that they're not present, that they're not there. So I do think that there's been a little bit of, um, maybe a lot, of cognitive dissonance. And now they become so interlocked. This idea of the, you know, kind of the political affiliation or the things that are, you know, tied to Trump and this idea of whatever your, your, your kind of Christian background and tradition is. Now, one last point I would say, and I'd love your thoughts on this. To a lot of these folks, a, a big part of it, you can at least begin to understand where it comes from in, in the sense that they believe we're waging a spiritual battle. Mm-hmm. Right. In other words, that, yeah, look, this guy's not perfect, but he's a hammer and I'm bashing at the devil with everything. You know what I mean? Like with all of these different sure. things. And so I can kind of tuck in with that bad company because it's it's leading to this sort of, you know, end. Again, that's a oversimplification, but I can imagine a lot of folks in that camp probably believe something similar to that. It makes it easier to turn their eyes on right. Access Hollywood or the other stuff. Because I they perceive these other that. issues are bigger. I mean, what was that saying? The enemy of my enemy is is my friend or my whatever. Is my friend, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's some of that going on here. I mean, I guess part of the look, we've talked about this now for a while in terms of why people, especially I think in the context of people that were very religious, would support Trump, right? Now you can say, I think to your point, and I, I agree, you're right in a long so to a large extent where you say this, which is people looked at. What can he do for me and what I believe in, regardless of who he is as an individual, right? And to the degree that he was supportive of many of the causes that people that are very, you know, religious are, then yeah, I, I get it. I totally can understand that, that, that rationale. I think the question that we're starting to get to now is to what degree can you overlook the person and everything else about the person, everything else that, that they do and decide to do and still be supportive because they actually still align with you? To, to what degree is... That hammer, if the hammer is used to kill other people, like, can I still want to use a hammer, even though it may be very useful for my specific thing? Mm-hmm. And I think it's the reconciliation of that or the fallout for that that is happening where people uh, now after him being in office for four years saw more of of, of him being in, of basically doing the things that he was doing. And in essence, I think a, a lot had to do with the fact of how uh, Trump himself behaved and how much he valued 100% loyalty. And how harsh it was with those that did not were not 100% loyal to him. So it really created this other type of like cult following where if you're either in my camp or you're against me. And I think for a lot of these folks, they, they made the conscious decision at some point. It's even, and even in this case, we're thinking we're speaking to more is other uh, Christian leaders that they made the conscious decision that, no, we're going to be with you and not against you, um, despite of all the other stuff that was kind of going on there. And I think for someone like it sounds like for Ms. Moore, it, it, that's the, the sort of the heart of the issue it's also an underlying thing here as it relates to what at least feels like her perception uh, or the reality of how women specifically, the role they play within the Southern Baptist Convention, mm-hmm. right? And her just not being for that anymore. And to the degree that if you think that Trump, through his approach, through how he treated women in general, does that bolster people who have already that, that feeling? It makes it that dynamic even worse. I'm sure that there's some of that that's definitely, you know, wrapped up in her decision. I read in one of the other pieces um, that she had said, hey, first it's the black 
women, then black men, now white women, and sort of like this yeah, progression. That's the one I, did, I, did you I, read that? I mentioned that quote right now. Yeah, oh, you yeah, did. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. I missed that. But anyway, um, I read some of the black pastors who have stepped away from mm-hmm. the um, SBC Southern Baptist Convention, and there's a lot of personal stuff wrapped up in this, right? Like one of the tweets that I saw from this one pastor when he made his announcement of "I'm out." was it took you 150 years to decry um, chattel uh, slavery, right? But it took you a month to come out against um, uh, critical race theory because apparently SBC has come out against critical race theory. Mm. So this idea of it took you so long to come out with this thing that this was bad, <laughs> but now you're com- it takes you five seconds to come out with this thing that yeah. this is bad. Yeah, but my point is, my, my point in saying that is you can agree both of those things are bad. They're bad at different degrees, obviously. Right. But you can agree that they're both bad. But there's definitely this well, sense of I will frustration. Say, even if you agree that – see, I will say not everyone agrees that they're both bad. No, I'm saying but if, if you even, agree. Even if you agree right. that they're both bad, right. it's it, a sense of like where are your priorities? Where are your priorities? And that's, that's yeah. what I was getting at yeah, because yeah, yeah. This, this particular pastor probably agrees with crit- critical race theory is also bad. Right. But my point is that he was saying like where is your prioritization? Where is your hierarchy of, of, of needs? And I think similarly with this – with um, remember her name again? I'm sorry. Uh, Miss uh, Moore. With Miss Moore, mm-hmm. um, she also has a lot of that kind of you know experience – she's had of you know being treated as lesser being made to feel inferior and all the different things that she talks about which you know to me no doubt are are um are there yeah we we didn't even get a chance to get into there's another article that i wanted to share as part of this that talked about some pastors that are basically leaving their congregation because of that they felt that many of them have been radicalized by QAnon, and these are all sort of movements that are sort of tied to each other right and it's it's to me, the, the really interesting part here is that we've never really had, at least that I could think of, we've never really had a moment like this where, look, for there was already a trend, as we've talked about before. We talked about it last time we, we, we discussed this this topic, is there's, a, there's been a, really a, a big trend where here in the U.S. and maybe in other parts of the world as well, but definitely here in the U.S., there's been a, a aggressive decrease in the amount of people that are considering themselves like active uh, Christians, right? And maybe f- faith in general, but I know specifically for Christians, right? And but it was never really, at least not my understanding, it was not necessarily for political reasons. Now in this case, well, there's such a close alignment, right? And you can say, well, 81 percent is a pretty high alignment in terms of, of the party, and not just the party, it's the person. I think at the end of the day here, and to the degree that that's going to accelerate that movement, um, I, I think it really is a disservice in my mind to to the faith and to that specific group that because of this this really unwavering support that there has been. Um, you know, it may further alienate other folks that may not may want to step away from the church because of it. Yeah, look again. I think it. You know, when you when you look at this, you almost have to kind of de-average a little bit because we're talking about a specific, traditionally very conservative subset of Protest- of Protestantism, which is itself a subset of Christianity, right? So, but you're right. In that case, high concentration of these previously conservative values that, to my mind have a tendency now to be hijacked by other things and all sort of wrapped up together mm-hmm. into one and can eventually take people away from what they claim to actually believe in. So I do think, again, going back to our initial quote, that there's been this disorientation due to all this. And a lot of people feeling like this is my best weapon in the battle. 
And like, I don't want to give it up. You know what I mean? It's like, this is the best I've got to counter. What do you, what do you mean about the best weapon in the battle? Like Trump being the best weapon in this spiritual battle oh, that I it, talked it, about it, earlier. It, right. Yeah, so yeah. like, you know, I feel if, if you're in that camp, you think like, hey, you know, popular culture is disintegrating. Look at all the anxiety, despair, depression, suicidality, poverty, all of those things, all of which are true, all of which are increasing. And then you look out and go. What is it that I can try to do to return some of the things that perhaps would help people or would orient them to a different thing, toward the transcendent, toward God, toward things that are that are bigger than whatever? And they view this as a maybe I'm just I'm only theorizing. Right. Maybe they view this as a way to like in that battle. This is that blunt object. It's going to take some people out with it. It's like collateral damage is definitely going to happen, right. but you're going to basically you know achieve some end with it. And the interesting point about it is the very first thing that I think about when I think about collateral damage is actually how sort of unchristian that kind of a- attitude is. If it's true, oh, that's very interesting. If it's true, like I think about, but I think it is true, Charlie. I mean, like, how do you not think it's not it's, true? No, no. Let me let me rephrase. Okay. If it's true for all, I'm saying in general. I know it's true for a lot of people. I'm yeah, just I saying, think for a lot of people. I'm true. saying, does it constitute every single evangelical in the country? No, it yeah, does maybe not. not. No, it but, does not. But there's a level of that. There's a level there of that for be, sure. Like, there's even, a level of that for sure. Look, even with, but there's a there's a level of religious intolerance, and frankly, sure, and we'll call it. Uh, religiousism or whatever the racism version of religious is religious intolerance right sure on the left i could make the same claim like people not only do not believe themselves they hate people who believe they they don't tolerate they they um discriminate against people who believe you can make that case for a lot of people on the left but i'm not saying it's hard for me to go all Democrats, all progressives, right. all even like in a fringe group like Antifa, even them, I wouldn't say all of them. But at, the more you go left, the less friendly to any kind of faith or religion you get. That's just the, that's just the truth. Yeah, but I still don't think that the left has embraced a full anti-religion view in the to the constant to the level of concentration that you're seeing here with this specific group with evangelical Christians, right? I mean, even Biden himself mm-hmm. is someone that is I think he's Catholic. I think is what he is, right? Second he Catholic, about, he's the second Catholic president in our history. Yeah, JFK was the first, right? Correct. Oh, look at that. I knew mm-hmm. that. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's one that talks about it, and he talks about his faith. And, and, of course, Biden himself is much more central than we think about, like, the far, far left. Sure. Right? So, But Biden also holds beliefs he, he, that are clearly against what the church teaches, and the bishops sh- have called him out on that. Sure. Right? So yeah, he's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. He's, you, you could make the case, being cynical, you could say he's the kind of religious that the left likes, which is somebody who doesn't really believe what he's practicing. You could say that, is all I'm saying. I, I mean, I, I guess, but I have to imagine that's probably the majority of people that are religious, which is, I, I think the people that 100% believe in every single aspect that their faith preaches is probably a small minority not making this claim without knowing it but just look i think you're right i think i think think that's going to be the majority of people but i don't know if they do that intentionally are you saying that they choose to not believe or you're saying that they don't know what the what the i think so many people 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 pick and choose i think they do in terms of of what they what they do now some of it is out of ignorance to your point but some of it is well knowing you still make decisions that you you want to make by the way can i tell you why i thought it was significantly unchristian because i I didn't make that point i I thought about the the um, story in in the Old Testament, where you remember Sodom and Gomorrah, that story where like the evil. I recognize the name, but I don't remember. Sodom the story. and Gomorrah were these these towns that were basically doing every kind of evil and debauchery and treating their people like crap. And basically, God sent down like judgment on these two on these two places. And at one point, um, uh, Abraham uh, is debating with God, literally talking to him. He's like, "Well, what if there's like fifty good people there?" 
will you wipe the place out? He's like, nope, won't wipe it out if there's 50 good people. He goes, well, what about 40 good people? He's like, nah, still won't. What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? All the way down to one. He goes, what if there's one person who doesn't deserve to be wiped out? Would you wipe it out? Even if you're going to wipe out all bad, but just one. And he's, and God says, no, I wouldn't wipe it out, even if there's one good person. Right. Right. So that idea of collateral damage, of using the blunt By tool, the way, I, I, is actually not Christian. That's really interesting. I know yeah. We're going off topic here. But no, then, no, no, no. But this is the topic. In that logic, mm-hmm. how could you have the great flood and with Noah? Like, yeah. it really was the case where the entire world, there was not other single good person yeah. except for Noah and his family. See what I'm saying? Well, like, that's I, a really interesting one. I think that... Um, and on animals and <laughs> sure, everything, sure. you know? I think that, um, you know, there's... there's uh, and I can probably put this in the show notes. There's really good resources on the difficult questions in Scripture than, and how to think about them. But the very first way to think about some of these questions, Jesus, is that the Bible isn't a book. It's a library. And in the library, there are fables... Mm-hmm. There are historical, you know, uh, documents. There are letters. Um, there are, yeah. you know, um, there's poetry. And so you have to kind of look at what the story of Noah, which actually, or the story of the flood, which comes from Genesis, which is, you know, something that at least certainly from a Catholic perspective, I'm speaking on behalf of the Catholic Church, you don't have to attest to in its historicity in order to understand the message or the lesson there. Right. And the lesson of, you know, the great flood is an idea of purification and salvation of a particular people of like saving people from devastation is the kind of like more the thematic there than the idea yeah. of like the destruction of all people. So you would put it more like more in a category of a fable or something that is not as. I think that what it whether or not you call it a fable and not people will deal with this subject differently. Uh-huh. What you what you feel what you'll have pretty much consistency among a very, the vast majority of the Christian, um, you know, theological community is that it is not to be read as strictly a historical document is what I'm saying. Oh, got In it, other got words, it, got like, it. so, so yeah, yeah, you yeah. can say it's a, uh, you know, there's other terms for I it. I suppose like some of the letters that were, that were. Right. What the right, letters are historical it, it, it. documents written from person A to I person seen, B and that kind that. of thing. So, that, you know, we would need a full hour to talk about that. <laughs> but, um, the, yeah, and the other thing that I would say, I guess, just back to this subject is, um, you know, the idea of, of um, you know, how the Protestant community and how the evangelical community here, you know, behaves and aligns itself, right? So, like, we've talked about how they've been very, very historically super conservative. They've also been very concentrated in certain parts of, of the country, mm-hmm. right? In certain geographical uh, territories, which tends to have a cultural influence in terms of who they are and and, and what they sure. believe, right? So I'm not sure how many people know all about this stuff already, so I may be repeating what already people know. But I think that's another aspect of this. It's not an excuse. It's an explanation in terms of how they've developed and what they've actually come to believe. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that this one is going to be an ongoing, obviously process here and there's going to be a certain level of reckoning look the, the, other, the other thing that sort of stood out to me about the story was a reference that was made about mr tisby who i mentioned right who you know is part of this or president of the black christian collective who's part of this campaign the hashtag leave loud right and i mean when you start having these kind of movements yeah. now where people are trying to be not just leaving but being very vocal, vocal about, about their it. about their departure mm-hmm. That that has to be super concerning if I if I'm in that you know leadership position, which I'm not, but I'm just saying if people that are in that leadership position for for SBC is that you have to like figure out like how you're gonna reconcile this because that really could undermine not just like how people believe in the faith now, but generations to come. Like all of them, their kids, like that has a ripple effect. You already have a problem with younger generations being a lot less 
um, you know, religious, and then you add to that this kind of political layer and this kind of division within within a you know based on on, on politicization to a faith. I mean that that's going to be tough to reverse that. And that's also sort of antithetical to Christianity in the sense of. Christianity is supposed to be about unity. It's supposed to be about right. community. It's yeah, supposed yeah. to be about coming together. So it's definitely a break. The, the, like the 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 young people, you know, getting farther away from this is a real issue. Yeah, it's a definite. I mean, like every statistic bears that out. Um, I'm not sure, you know, whether how how material this kind of thing is to alienating them because I think a lot of those things have pre-existed things like Trump um, in terms of like they're leaving you know, Christianity or the faith, but it's not going to help. Yeah. I, I just think of, if you have folks that are very vocal and prominent in the faith and are a little bit more progressive, but are still within it, the second mm-hmm. they start leaving, then it's like, like all hope is lost in terms of those that may not be as conservative and usually going to be the, the younger people. I think for me, the rule of thumb has always been vis-a-vis progressive and conservative, because again, that's terminology that you really shouldn't have in a Christian context, right? I could see somebody saying, you know, maybe a more traditional way to do a liturgy sure. and a maybe more modern way to read a scripture because scholarship changes and all that stuff. But the idea of political kind of values within within religious communities is something that tends to kind of muck things up, you know, whenever that's introduced. And for me, my line, which has served me well, I think, is I try not to look left or right. I look up yeah. when it comes to religious issues. Um, and so far, I think that's served me pretty well because I think I see to your point, what happens when you don't do that. All right. Is that our deep dive? That, that was our deep dive, yes. Wow. That's pretty it's good. It's a good, good uh, level of depth. I don't know how deep, but uh, <laughs> but I think we... So long think, we can hold our I breath, think, I guess. I think we got there. Um, so we have poetry. We have cartoons. Yes. We Courage have, uh, we have a, quite a mix here. We have over-the-top platforms. Uh, there's a lot of potential here for memorability. Where, so, where do we start? Yeah, let's start. Let's start with poetry. The hill we climb, right? So when mm-hmm. translating a poem stops being about just translating a poem. Okay. So a writer named Victor, and by the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher all these I will names. Help you. So I will we're help gonna you. work through this. So please bear with me. A writer named Victor Obiols. Is what I'm gonna go with. Uh, Obiols. Yeah. Obiols. I would say okay. That. Who was ca- hired to translate Amanda Gorman's poem "The Hill We Climb" into Catalan has been removed by the publisher. Amanda Gorman is the woman, the young woman from the yeah, Biden inauguration. That's right. So this is the poem that was famously shared as part of the inauguration, and and almost immediately became an iconic cultural moment, right? Um, and by the way, I would say, like in watching this and seeing her perform it, I was really blown away with that poem, and and. I think in part was a combination of the poem and also when you looked at her, I thought she was a child, I didn't, or not a child, but like a teenager because she looks so young. She's like maybe early 20s, I think is what, is what her age is. But when she was up there, I was seeing it in the concept of thinking that she was maybe, you know, 15 years old. And that's maybe me just not realizing how she was a little bit older than that. So to me, it was a super powerful moment what, having her yeah. read this poem, like so impactful on the words she was saying. And also, which, which at least at the time when I was first seeing it, was recognizing her youth, thinking what, of her as as a kid, you yeah. know, basically providing this. So I'm just saying that was me personally, my own. But do you think that she response. sounded older than she was or she sounded like. No, she sounded. Yeah, she sounded great. I mean, she sounded like she, gave she was the, very mm-hmm. poised. It was. Got it. Okay. It was delivered. I just thought so it was of like, her that yeah. because of how young she looked, I just thought she was a like a teenager, you yeah. know? Uh, so to me, it was even much more impactful. But that's me personally, just my reaction to to, to seeing the moment. So right? that's Amanda Gorman. I mean, Amanda I'm, Gorman, right? She's like, the, she's the next uh, Maya Angelou in terms yeah, of Yeah, so she's gone a lot of press, right? Po- poetry popularity, yeah. But uh, but according to Obiols, right, uh, he said that Gorman's representatives were looking for someone matching the profile of the original writer. 
right? So it's a quote, is, by the way. That's a quote. Matching um, the profile. Matching the profile, right? Meaning someone that will that will be you know black or mm-hmm. you know as, as Amanda is African American. Um, now this is the second case in Europe in just the past month after Dutch writer Marieke Lucas no hope Rijveneveld. No. I'm gonna say that's Marieke Lucas Reinveld. Reinveld. Oh wow, yeah. that's a very different. I'm gonna say Reinveld. Marieke Lucas. So I would yes. say Lucas, just because that's Reinveld. the that's the one that I can say the easiest. So okay. he handed back a commission to to translate Gorman's work, following a backlash from critics who questioned why a white writer. Uh, had been chosen to translate a black writer's work. Interesting. Right? Now, in speaking to CNN, Obiel said that he thought the decision to revoke his commission was down to the pressure of U.S. social movements. And he said, and I quote, I understand the political dimensions of the decision. I feel solidarity with women and black people. And he also mentioned, and I quote, there is a debate about whether the circumstances of a work of art is part of this work of art or whether it should be judged by the content itself independently of the circumstances or identity of the author. So courage or cringe on this one. I mean, I will say they're both related in in both what just happened and also the previous writer uh, of basically these writers being uh, decommissioned from doing the translation because they did not. Sure. uh, uh, Because basically they weren't black. I mean, there's another way of saying it, I think. Um, In this case, I I think both are male. um, So they could also be that as well. Um, But at least they, they were not black. So, courage or cringe? Yeah, so th- this one's a cringe for me. There, Look, in the world of art, as, as far as I see it, there are composers and there are interpreters. Those are the two kinds of artists, right? Um, so you may have somebody who can, uh, you know, play Rachmaninoff's third or some, you know, uh, concerto, but can't write it, couldn't create it, right? And in all of art, there's been interpreters, right? I mean, look, we've been interpreting ancient Greek and Latin and whatever, and it's not just Greeks that do that or people from Latin-based cultures that do that. So I think the idea that you must belong to the group of the artists in order to be able to translate the art itself or even interpret the art, I think is foolish. I think it's a really bad precedent for other kind of art, art, art forms having said that. I do understand the idea of um, actually there's a quote in one of the articles from this woman who was asked about this. And she said that, you know, interpretation can bring can can carry across experiences that are private, intimate and products of specific histories and cultural experiences into another sensibility. And I I do believe that's true. Mm -hmm. So if you are a member of that particular group, perhaps you can phrase it, explain it. Put your little flourish on it that makes it more relatable. But then at that point, I would argue you're actually entering the realm of creator and not translator and not interpreter, right? So it's a very fine line. I, I think it's a really fine line. But I think I think all translation have some level of that. They do. Like you have to understand intent, not because we've seen you bad do. translation. Like of course we've seen, especially this little work that we do when there is lack of understanding of intent. Well, right. look we at Google Translate. Whole, Google yeah, Translate is the best example of that, right? We had it's a whole like, engagement, right, not that long ago, a few months back, where it was like a great example of someone translate did not understand intent. And it was a disaster. Yeah. And you could understand what they were trying to say, but we had to literally go back and redo it and, frankly, add in our own sort of experience made the right one, but that our own understanding of what it was that the author was trying to say to begin with. Right, and that's my point. So now you know, languages by their very nature are uh, products of and related to cultures, right? So Mm -hmm. 
You know, I don't know. Look, I, I've been to Amsterdam. I'm sorry, to Holland, but I don't know anything about Dutch ho- culture besides visiting Amsterdam. Like, I don't know much about it. But yeah. I, but I will tell you that just having somebody who's a particular skin color and then translating it into the Dutch experience, I don't know. I don't know how that either dramatically adds or subtracts from a Dutch perspective, because that's ultimately what you're translating it into, right? It's, right. it's like you're you're incorporating this into the Dutch experience. So do you need somebody who really knows about Dutch culture? Yeah, you do. You do need somebody that, that knows about Dutch culture. But do you need somebody who has an African-American experience to translate into Dutch? I think that'd be ideal, assuming that they spoke Dutch really well. I don't think it's enough to disqualify somebody who isn't. And I also believe that it cross it can begin to cross a line into now the translator is the creator. And I think that that yeah. seems in, weird to me. In the case of the Dutch writer, if I remember correctly, the part of the complaint came from the fact that they were raising that there were black women that were Dutch that actually had much more experience in writing poems or translating poems. So the knock with with uh, with Lucas I doesn't remember what I can say was more because a that he wasn't black, second that he wasn't, and I believe that his ex- experience wasn't say tied to poems. So the idea was like, well, why if you have this other like poet that is black that also is like, yeah. like why wouldn't you choose that? So and maybe that's I true. Maybe it's just some bad filtering for who they were looking for. I don't know. I but, can understand some of that. Yeah, yeah. But anyways, but, f- f- finish your thought. No, no. But somebody somebody getting basically fired effectively the catalan guy seems like he was asked to not do this anymore right right? um for this reason i think is a cringe and 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 also i just wonder about how much of this since it's happening after the fact is motivated by the the thing that happened with the dutch guy or maybe other sure yeah it's probably some kind of ripple effect from it yeah i could see that so look i i think that there's nothing wrong with doing a business decision where you say hey we're going to look for people who have good experience in poetry who have good experience with issues of whatever her particular poetry deals with maybe they have a i don't know like all those things are fine right but i don't think that you need to exclude people of a particular race or ethnicity when you're translating a work of art into another language um i just i just don't think you should do that i think that that's cringeworthy and that my further point is that if we allow the translator to to bring too much of that their own kind of context right. into it's, it, it's a derivative work at that point. Exactly, it's a deri- which may, by the way, maybe great, but it's something else. Yeah. Um, okay. Now that's that sounds fair. Yeah. For me, it was also a cringe uh, when I saw this. I thought it was also cringe worthy for a lot of reasons that you stated already, right? Which is at the end of the day, look, I, I I could think of a lot of reasons why I would agree with having someone with a shared type of experience. Maybe someone that is black that has that, you know, has that sort of perspective of growing up uh, in a country that is uh, where they're the minor- minority, which have maybe some shared experience with with uh, with with uh, Amanda, the Amanda Gorman, the, the, the author right, of, the, of the poem of how that can be really helpful in making sure that they understand the intent of the words that were being originally you know said. So I understand. I get all that. But. Once it starts becoming like a trend where all of a sudden anyone which this is starting to feel in that in that kind of category, anyone who's not black, they should just not automatically be disqualified from being able to translate the work. That's where I have more of an issue with it. Right. I think if there is an opportunity to, and this goes back to who do they actually source to begin with, 
to find someone that has some level of shared experience. Even, by the way, even part of that level of shared experience, maybe someone, and I, by the way, I know nothing about Amanda and where she grew up. But let's say she grew up in a you know very poor environment and kind of worked her way up and went to school. You can find people like that that have shared life experience in these other countries. They may not be black, That's but they could point. also be yeah. someone that has a lot of points points of commonality that could be, I think, really interesting and actually understanding mm-hmm. the context of feeling marginalized, of feeling like they don't belong, and being able to to bring that to life as part of their work. That would be great. I just. I don't like that now we start seeing multiple people kind of getting disqualified. And the first one, I think there was a little, maybe a little more of a case there, at least from what I remember reading. And I'm going off of memory, so I could be wrong at what I, what I just said. But uh, that's what it, what it bothered me more on this one. Um, the other thing that I thought could be inter- kind of interesting is, look, to the degree that in translating this work creates an opportunity for more literally diverse voices in these countries to be able to come forth and be part of the process on something that feels like a moment of un- of, of of unity and, and having this like this great you know poet uh, poet bring this this project to work. I think that's great, but but it, it shouldn't be at the exclusion of. It should be with with the eye on inclusion, right? And that's why I think for those reasons, when I think about this in its totality, I just didn't like the way it's 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 being played. Cause it definitely feels like it's more of a you can be part of this because it's only if you have this kind of experience. Because by the way, you can have a, a, an author here who is black. In one of these countries that has literally nothing no, in common, exactly with Amanda nothing Corbin. in common with with Amanda, right? In terms of how she grew up, etc. Maybe has a very different lifestyle altogether, a different life experience. So that that can be enough, even if they have also obviously experienced translating work. A hundred percent agree. Okay, we're off to we're a, one, one for one. One for one. I, nice. We should uh, stop. I, th- I think we'll pause here. I'm and ready. Just call it a day. Thank no. you for listening. We'll see you next <laughs> week on TDR. No kidding. Uh, all right, topic two. So. Canceling Pepe Le Pew, right? Pepe Le Pew. Pepe Le Pew. By the way, they made him French for a reason. Come on, that was like thumb in their eye at the at the French at some point. This was yeah, very like well, World know, War Two, you know. No, I think it's because France is, is you know has a reputation of being the city of Paris, the city of love. It's all oh, about is love. That what it is? That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he was always so you know trying to like basically this. convince somebody. Uh, <laughs> Which now, you know, very much frowned upon. So can cut scenes really be demanded by actors who don't agree, right? Mm-hmm. So Pepe Le Pew, you know, has been cut from the upcoming sequel of Space Jam, A New Legacy. By the way, that's the first mistake. Why make a sequel of Space Jam? Come on. Yeah, Come on. I thought, I, I'm not looking forward to Space Jam, A New Legacy, Frank. Because I, I really like the original. Um, you know, you had Jordan and Bugs Bunny. Well, you know, you, you, can't, you can't do that. That may have been the last 2D animation live action mix, right? It was like... Was, uh, who Framed Roger Rabbit? That was before, that, right? Who Framed Roger Rabbit was before, but there were like the two ones that anybody can say. That, that movie was like the two biggest blew ones. my mind. Who Framed was, Roger Rabbit? Like, I was so blown away when I saw like watching that movie the it first was, time. It was kind of mind bending. Yeah, 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 it was. Although they had other ones that were even earlier. They had the Puff the Magic Dragon, the the Disney movie, where it had like oh, the yeah, green yeah. dragon flying yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember action. that one, but yeah, I know I know what you're talking about, but I don't remember it. I'm older than you are, Jesus. Is that what it is? <laughs> Not that much, but I mean. Yeah, yeah. I guess. Uh, we're we're going to go with that. All right. However, yes. uh, Gracie Santo, the actress who was featured on the scenes, doesn't want to let it go. Now, she believes there is complete footage of their scenes and is looking to retrieve them. Through her representatives, she offered a $100,000 reward, in, in quotes, to anyone who provides the footage of their animated live action exchange. I love this story. Yeah, <laughs> love that. And posting they, a reward. And of course, Warner Brother came out and was like, what the hell are you talking about? You're, asking, you're, you're yeah, giving he's like, money away for people to steal our stuff. Exactly. They, they responded in a letter to the Times. It is a crime for someone to solicit another to steal and distribute Warner Brothers property. Like That was, the, of course, the obvious response of Warner Brothers, right? Which they, of course... Uh, 
uh, Santo and representatives later clarified, no, 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 the 100K was to purchase the scene from Warner Brothers. Yeah, right. Yeah, whatever. Talk whatever. about revisionist yeah. history. I can see them all in the room going, oh my gosh, what do we do? Uh, tell them that the 100 grand was for Warner Brothers. Exactly. Well, that was why the would reward. we have just gone to Warner Brothers? Who we know, by the way, we're in one exactly. of their movies. We're, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you only knew someone from Warner uh, Brothers they could it, talk yeah, to. Exactly. <laughs> we'll tweet this. We'll see if anybody responds exactly. from Warner Brothers. Uh, Highly unlikely. Now, the scene in question yeah. involves the problematic animated skunk approach the live-action character portrayed by Santo in a bar. She pushes Peppa away when he starts kissing her arm. Then she pours her drink on him. She eventually backhands the, the persistent skunk, which sends his bar still spinning before it is stopped by the film star, LeBron James. Now, according to Santo, uh, she said that the message was meaningful to her as someone who had spoken out against sexual harassment. She said, and I quote, For me, it was so important to have the scene in, in a movie to inspire the younger generations and also the older generations so we can correct the behavior. I felt that this scene was a way to show kids that this kind of behavior is wrong. She went on to say to the LA Times, She understands that things like this happen over the course of her production, but hopes the footage can be released in one way or another. What does she want to do with it? She, she, well, she wants it, well, I think she wants to use it as a teaching moment. I think so I, she wants to distribute it separately? I guess, yeah. The, the whole thing of, like, let me acquire and then what? Like, no idea, right? But I think her point was more about that interaction that she had with Pepe Le Pew, right? And look, for context, for those of you that maybe too young and don't remember, Pepe Le Pew was a little character, this little skunk, that was always trying to basically romance some character in the... No, it was in, always the same character. It was a cat. That's what made it funny because well, it wasn't it was even a, a skunk and they kept having the paint go down her back, right. so it was the a, cat's back, so he thought, I thought it was thought a it was, skunk. I thought it was more than just a cat because he did it multiple times. It was always it was, a black cat. It was a black cat yeah, that he thought was a skunk. It definitely was a black cat that he was trying to like convince, right? And the, the problem here is that now when you look at it in the context or and especially post-Me Too era, and you see the kind of behavior that this little, you know, uh, um, skunk. Sorry, I was calling him a raccoon. because <laughs> skunk had, you know, uh, it, it's a little problematic. It's problematic when you see the kind of how you act. And the, the thing, the question that basically Santos is raising is like, she wants to be able to show it as a way to like show kids how to deal with this kind of behavior. And basically in that interaction they have, obviously he doesn't get away with it and gets kind of, you know, pushed back yeah. from having this very persistent approach. And, and really trying to, like, I guess, value her space, et cetera, and wanted to use it as a teaching moment. Now, what she was going to do with that footage, I don't know. But, you know, the, the one thing she did say is, of course, that uh, um, that she wasn't going to be deferred from continuing her work for the cause. And she previously recorded a single about standing up to sexual harassment and her charity, uh, Glam with Greasy, uh, works to uplift women who have been victims of abuse or bullying through Hollywood makeovers. So she's one that, you know, Obviously, he was very strongly in, in, in fighting against sexual harassment and, and almost saw this as in this little interaction as a, as a way to show this, uh, show this a kid that, you know, you, they're, they're not going to stand for sexual harassment. Using it, I guess, as a, as a teaching moment. Mm-hmm. Your turn. So uh, courage on courage on this one. Now, by the way, is it is it what she, what Gracie. I think it has to be. Yeah. But 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 her saying that she wants it back. Correct. I think it Got has it. to be on. Okay. I, think, I think it has to be on her basically wanting to get the the, the footage. Scenes. Yeah, the footage, right? So a... I would say, look, the her wanting to get the footage is a complete cringe. Okay. Right, because you cannot be in a situation where, as an actor, if you don't agree with your scene getting cut, all of a sudden you're gonna make a big stink and try to get it back. Is and that then, the to only your point, one that she's in? Did I miss that? 
Is it the uh, only scene she's in? Or that I don't know. I, I don't know. So would, by the way, that would change things. That would change. The, no, yeah, my guess is not. My guess is she has a bigger role in the film. Is just we're just talking about that specific scene with that that she really liked. That she really wanted mm-hmm. to be able to show, mm-hmm. right? So I, I I have I see cringe in how in a allowing for actors to be able to get scenes back because of your point. What are you gonna do with it? You can publish that on his own. I guess you could put it on social media and be like, hey, look, this is this cool thing that I did. And I strongly believe in fighting against sexual harassment and using it as a, its own sort of out of context teaching moment. Maybe. But I, I don't see any scenario where if a, a studio or, or any of the, like the, 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 the IP owners would allow for that to happen. I also think the way she went about doing it was terrible. Putting out this reward, this bounty, literally. For someone to get the... the, the and then lying the, about yeah, it. Yeah, the, <laughs> the footage back. And then trying to pretend like, no, 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 we were just saying to buy it. Like, all of that to me is very cringe. What I do really do appreciate is what she's saying, right? When she gives a reason, look, and I, all I could do is take her for her word. I don't know who she is. I've never seen anything about her, so I, I can't... I, what I, else was she in? She was in... Uh... I, I don't know. Um, she's done some other stuff, but I, I frankly don't know, don't know what she's involved in. Um... But but the the thing I did like a lot about is what she said as to why she wanted to do it, right? Which basically for her was this, um, basically wanted to use this to, to an extent as a as a teaching moment to inspire younger generations, right? That that's the kind of behavior that is not okay for people to have, and and so that it could be corrected. And that sentiment of using these as teaching moments, I thought is is admirable. I like the idea of that. I liked what she stands for. I thought her approach was really really terrible of how she wanted to go about doing it. But I like what she was trying to accomplish by doing that, at least if you believe what she says. And once again, I don't know anything about her, so I can't really argue that that, that it isn't the case. Um, you know, look, I'll give you an example. I, Susan Jane the Virgin, by the way. Oh, was she? Okay. And born in Brazil. Okay. Brazilian. Latina. Okay. Um, I was watching a show with my daughter. Um, it's, uh, it's called Project MC Squared, right? And this show is about, like, these five little girls who are all, like, uh, secret agents, right? And they go around solving crimes, et cetera. Now, in one of the episodes um, that we were watching with my daughter, there was a scene where one of the one of the central characters, she's been like getting basically bullied by this boy in one of her classes, right, the entire time. And it turns out that at the end of one of the episodes, he basically tells her that he likes her, and that's the reason why he's been bullying her. Now, when I saw that, I immediately started to cringe. I'm like, oh my god, like, like please don't make a thing. Like all of a sudden, she's like, oh, that's great because you like me, and you were just basically like really mean and. and and what was great about how they handled it in that in that in that show is that the the character said like you know what well you shouldn't treat women that way you want you want girls to like you you gotta respect them you gotta you can't like be mean to them you can't and then turn around and say that just because you like them that somehow makes it okay and the guy got like a total chew out in that moment and all of a sudden it went from something to me that could have been extremely cringy that I was as a parent now looking at it as a dad with a with an you're gonna have to daughter. have a side with yeah yeah exactly to be like. And she was like, yeah, he, and, she, right. and, and she like mm-hmm. jumped in like, yeah, that's right. He was being really mean to her. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay, this is really well handled. And I like the fact that they actually used that scene. They didn't mm-hmm. cut that out. Like that could have been the other approach, just not use it at all, right? But I, I thought it was actually really well done, a really a nice teachable moment and something that actually reinforced a positive message. Right. Even when showing bad behavior. So from that, from that perspective, I understand her context of what she was trying to accomplish, I just think her way of doing it was really bad. Okay, 100% agree. I mean, this is an easy one for me. There's, But there's three things. Number one, it's, first of all, the way that she did it and the fact that she's asking for this cut scene and et cetera is a cringe. 100% agree with you. Um, made it worse the fact that she lied about or they lied for her, whatever happened, but nobody believes what she said. That's separate from two other things that are happening. Number one is this idea of sexual harassment 
and educating young girls, maybe specifically, but all kids. Yeah, even to, young boys. Like, it's not okay to treat course, people like that. Of yeah. course it's not. And I raise my boys and girls with similar, um, you know, lessons. That's good. Those are those are always good. And then the third thing is, what does any of this have to do with Pepe Le Pew? Because you could have a different perspective on that. I happen to have a different perspective. And I'm not saying that he's, like, a perfect character for the age. He's not, precisely because of this. But I look at the fact that nobody's looking at how this character came about or what he actually is. Number one, he's a skunk. He was made as this kind of like semi-repulsive. Nobody wants to cuddle up next to a skunk. Skunks smell, right? He's supposed to be this kind of like character that's going to elicit these semi-negative responses that everybody's in on. The audience is in on the fact that this is not somebody that we want to like emulate and be like, right? And we give no credit to the audience to be able to kind of figure this stuff out. The other thing is he's constantly getting like bashed over the head and like, you know, smacked and like whatever. He's he's almost like a he's punch. He's all for love. He's like a punch. Yeah, he's like a punch dummy and, and he claims to be doing it all for love. For love. And I appreciate what you said about the whole city of love and all that, and that's true. However, look, uh, Americans and, and the French, have there's not been a lot of love loss over decades between these two cultures, and I think there's an additional reason why he was made French, okay? So, <laughs> You're not giving the benefit of the doubt, huh? I'm not. So I think all of these things go into the fact to say that, you know, I don't think that this character is being presented in the same way as other characters. And I think that the audience knows that he's somebody that we don't emulate, knows that he's like, oh, here's this kind of cringy Pepe Le Pew. Even back in the day, back in the 40s and 50s, it was like, oh, Pepe Le Pew. So, so I think that, like, you know, that's part of it. And um, I think that it's a bridge too far for me to go that everything that he was doing and representing was this like blatant, you know, uh, sexual harassment or worse. The New York Times called called yeah. his character like indicative of rape culture. Yeah. Um, I don't see that. I think that the audience, you know, was in on it. I think that they understand that he's not somebody who's necessarily admired. Um, and I think that, you know, we have to give the audience more credit and then we also have to like, you know, talk to our kids and not hope cartoons are educating them. So for all those reasons, I, I don't have as big of a problem with the content, but I agree with you of what this, um, you know, uh, Santo, uh, uh, did was cringe and you know, right. that's where that's at. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, look, I think to me, the editorial decision to cut it or not, like I, I could see it either way. I could see the. I could see her point. I, I really do appreciate what she was. At least, if you take her word for it, what she's trying to do, or at least her intentions are. Mm-hmm. Pepe Le Pew as a character. I mean, to your point. I mean, I, I have to look at this now as an adult, and especially as a dad of a girl with such a different lens that I did as a kid. You know, but there is, I think, a lot of media out there of which there I see more of it now of the course correction that I would never see before. Where mm-hmm. I forgot what I was watching as well. Something to do with like a little boy was you know, trying to like go out with a little girl or, or trying to like tell a little girl they liked her and they he approached her a couple of times and was super frustrated and upset. And he was talking to like the mom character or sister. And she was like, yeah, like I went and I like, I tried to like tell her that I like her and I already like asked her like two times, but she like, rejected me both times. Like, what should I do? And the mom or sister, I forgot who it was, looked at him like, leave her alone. Like, that's what you should do. She already told you what she wants. And frankly, even I was surprised to hear that. I was like, oh, I wonder what they're going to give him as the suggestion the to what to do next. More flowers. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's the point. Like yeah. that, when I see that, I'm like, yeah. We, do you, do you that think, message, we don't, like, I didn't get that as a, as a little boy growing up. Right. Do you think that Tassiana would watch, your daughter would watch Pepe Le Pew and 
look at it and say, you know, would she would she look at that character and how what would her response be to that character? Do you think? Um, I think it will be confusion as to why he's acting that way right now. Mm-hmm. That that will be the case because in the same example that I just gave you earlier about that show Project MC Square, she was very like happy and adamant about her response to him and as being like like a little bit of that empowerment like yeah like that's that's right. right like why was he being so like not understanding so i'm glad that that's her orientation now and i think part of it frankly because how we raised her and we talked to her like that she kind of like people like treat her to her in any sort any sort of way sure so i'm not in any way uh giving media cartoons shows like the basically the the, the freedom to raise my child like that's my job at the same time, I definitely like when there is content that reinforces the kinds of values that I would already align with. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Pepe Le Pew, Le Cancelled. All right. <laughs> Le Cancelled. Well, by the way, it wasn't even about Pepe Le Pew getting cancelled. It simply got cut from the, from, the, from, the, from the film, right? It is more about... Well, I mean, it's like I don't know how many other chances that bad he's going to get, Jesus. It's not like people are dying to bring back. Uh, I, I think probably people will be fine. Animation, by the way. <laughs> he, animation franchises from the forties. I think not, this may have been his last I'm chance. I'm not crazy concerned with his uh, job uh, opportunities going forward. Another uh, entertainment one. All right, so th- this was a, an interesting one, uh, and a little bit different than maybe some of the ones that we've, we've talked about before. So we wanted to talk about why coming to America didn't come to Paramount Plus, right? So. Coming to America, a sequel to the 1988 comedy premiered on Amazon Prime Video on March 5th. Now, the original Coming to America, without the number two, just T.O., was one of the highest box office earners of 1988, earning more than $350 million and was celebrated for having a predominantly black cast. Now, over the years, the original film had reached some uh, cultural status. It was a super funny movie, too, the first one. The first one was great. Super it was funny. super funny. Uh, the McDonald's knockoff, the McDowell's, whatever McDowell's, it was. yeah, and it had yeah, a like that uh, weird M. I mean, it's, I think it was probably one of the first films I remember seeing Samuel Jackson. He was the like the homeless guy, I guess it would be, oh, or, yeah, or the, the, right. the the robber that came in uh, to try to steal money. I don't know if he was homeless or not, but he was like a like a robber. Try yeah. he tried to rob the the restaurant. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah. yeah, so that's uh you know. Way back in the day, hysterical though, um, like Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall playing multiple roles. I remember. Yeah, they're this- both great. Um, now the new film was originally planned for a theatrical release in mm-hmm. December 2020, but Prime Video purchased the distribution rights from Paramount Studios for 125 million in October. Right? Seems like a lot. Yeah, it seems like a lot. Um, although, if you put it in contrast with the first film making more than 350 million, it's, it's not a lot to be paying for it, right? Which then teases us up for the right. Really so, high what makes question. this interesting mm-hmm. or controversial? Well, well, first is this decision of Viacom CBS, the parent company of both. Paramount Studios and Paramount Plus to not include Coming to America as part of the launch of Paramount Plus on March 4th, which was literally the day before it, uh, the film uh, released on, on Amazon Prime, right? And then Paramount Plus was originally, so Paramount Plus, by the way, was originally launched as a CBS All Access, then rebranded to Paramount Plus, and was heavily promoted during this year's Super Bowl, which aired on CBS, which uh, you guessed it is also owned by Viacom CBS. So you have a new streaming platform, a rebranded, relaunched streaming platform, Paramount Plus. That was launching on March 4th. You have, you know, CBS who also is, is broadcasting Super Bowl, who's airing all these commercials about Paramount Plus. And you have this film coming back to life since 1988, right? Seems like some synergy opportunities. Seems like a little bit of synergy, right? So like you're like, why wouldn't you want to pair all those things together? 125 right? million reasons why. But even then, 125 million, yes, that sounds great in the context of the first one being doing 350 million, a movie that is very iconic. You know what it yeah. you know what it tells uh-huh. me? They probably didn't believe in the second well, one as much. Well, there's the question, mm. right? So the question why? So there could be a number of things, right? Um, 
So the first could be is to your point, they didn't believe the potential of the film, right? Now, would it be no, potential, potential of the film in this case would be as what, right? In the context of driving subscribers to Paramount Plus, driving and retaining subscribers to Paramount Plus. Yeah, right? that it so could be for is, Paramount Plus what Mandalorian was for Disney. That it could be a lead-in. Yeah, as a lead-in, right? Now, would it be different if the series was, uh, was rather than a film, was it a series? Maybe, right? Because that becomes a bigger driver for it. Um, but the idea is like they obviously didn't believe that it could anchor a subscription drive for the service. It might be a great series, by the way. It probably could be a great series. I think it could be definitely yeah. a series, right? Um, so that's sort of question one. The question two is, that, or it could have something to do with who the core audience was for coming to America. The first one or the second one? Both. Not aligning with Well, but coming with to America, the Plus. first one, well, okay, that's very, yeah. I mean, right? the thing is, the film, question, but- the film will predominantly feature an almost all black cast, mm-hmm. right? Very much, a lot of the films are going to be very reminiscent of the first one, right? And was bound to do well, very well with black audiences, right? There so is, there's there a mm-hmm. question here is that Paramount Plus or, or Viacom CBS seeing, seeing this, this, this film and saying, even if it does well, the kind of audience that it's going to draw, does it align well with the kind of audience that we are able to get or retain? I'm sure there was or that retain for that matter, right? Which is, do and I have, the, and we the, have enough content in our portfolio mm-hmm. of what Paramount Plus is that would actually keep people engaged to want to continue like streaming the platform or just sign on and sign off, right? And the or thing, that, and, the and, thing that, and that you don't hear anymore, but that was a little, you know, a, an open secret in Hollywood forever and probably still is on some level, is this notion that black cast films open small, that they're that they're small, they don't have a lot of draw beyond black, you know, audiences. And as a percentage of the total population, it's whatever. Now, coming to America, the first one, deb- um, whatever, upended that, that yeah, thinking. Yeah, really, really Because well. it crossed way over, and it was super successful across all segments sure. and quadrants. So I find it hard to to, to make that case because well, they should have known that. And even well, even like Black Panther, right? That's the, that's the best example sure. more, more, of, more of late that, you know, pretty much an all-black cast, almost entirely all-black cast, mm-hmm. did extremely, extremely well. Well, and Eddie Murphy's had, as a career, has had a lot of films that have He's gone lot, way beyond... Yeah. Just so, a particular audience. So Coming to America, right, received mixed reviews since its release. It received 52% critics score and 48% audience score Ron Tomatoes, right? But by the that's way, not good. That's not good, but there's plenty of films that do extremely well with like really crappy, crappy Ron, Ron Tomatoes scores. Mm-hmm. However, in its first weekend on Amazon Prime, the film became the most watched streaming film since movie theaters closed a year ago due to COVID-19, right? According to Amazon and Screen Engine ASI, which is a third-party, I guess, uh, service that, that does the ratings for, the, for these things. For streaming. And then also, here's another really great kicker. Amazon was the number one downloaded app for entertainment on the App Store and number two downloaded app across all free apps over the debut weekend. But is that, like, when is it not number one? Is that, like, a big deal? Yeah, there has to be a big deal. But yeah. Really? For sure it's a big deal. You mean, yeah, like, yeah. new downloads? Like, somebody's like, oh, I don't have well, Amazon. Well, Let me go get it. you get number two downloaded up across all free apps? Just think about that right now. You could be downloading Facebook. Right, you could be downloading Twitter. Right. You could be downloading all these other apps all the time. And for Amazon to be the number two? Like, right. that's I guess, a big deal. So I'm just guessing the millions of people who download Amazon all the time. And what you're saying is there's there was a spike a above spike, and beyond yeah. Yeah, during yeah, those particular yeah. days. Then, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's that's very significant. Yeah. I, yeah. Go ahead. So, I mean, it's basically that, right? I mean, we, we, we see what's happened with the film. And there's a lot of questions here about, you know, whether it was the wrong, you know, to the point, was it just because it was a bad movie? Was it because it was a bad audience? Or was it just a bad strategy? Right. And so we think about courage or cringe. It really is a decision from Viacom CBS to not include coming to America 
uh, as part of their Paramount Plus launch, or ready yet to sell the the film to. Uh, I think to, across to every one of those quadrants, Jesus, it was a cringe. Everyone. Like okay. bad strategy. I think it was probably conversations like this thing is going to be a little smaller than we think. It's been too long since the original French, uh, the original movie. Eddie Murphy's popularity is waning. It's it's an all black cast and predominantly going to probably just you know cater to black audiences, which tend to be a, a minority. Right. Uh, you know, although they may over-index in streaming, if I don't if I remember correctly. Right. Um, so I think all those things went into it. But the bottom line, with the synergies that they had available to them, with mm-hmm. the debut of this service, with the built-up brand appeal of that franchise, and despite the fact that Eddie Murphy's older and whatever, still super popular guy. You know what I mean? All of those things combined. And then on top of that, the one thing, the PR questions that it could create, precisely right. the ones we're discussing right now. And for $125 million bucks, I mean, in the, in the scheme of this world, it's, it's not, not a lot. lot. It's not a lot. It's not a lot. But I think that's honestly what it was. I think it was like, look, we can get $125 million in hand. It guarantees a whatever level hit that would have been if it was a box office premiere or if we got $125 million in marketing or subscription value from using it promotionally. So we'll figure we'll take that and we'll open this with something it's else. Like, I think it was a big lost opportunity. Yeah. So it's cringe for me around across the board. I am 100% across the board. cringe on this one as well. Did we just match all three, by the I way? I think we just yeah, did. We just did, right? I think we just did. And here's also why. Not only, not only <laughs> exactly. For all the reasons you, you stated about Viacom CBS and all the synergy that was there that they could really just capitalize on. But also when you see what Amazon did, right? Amazon, of course, they leaned into this hard. super hard. They're they were doing takeovers on the site the whole time. Takeovers. Yeah. They're doing it on uh, the like the trucks. They have you know their messaging there. Sure. As part of the launch strategy, they partnered this whole initiative around supporting black biz- black owned businesses. Fucking I mean, genius. how that's like, what I, like you're kidding me because like, it features black owned businesses. Like, what? It's so Idiot. short-sighted. Like, it's so, so short-sighted. short-sighted. It's, I mean, and it was yours, by the way. It's one thing if you didn't come up with the idea or whatever, or it was open bidding and you lost a sure. bid. It's your IP, right? Right. <laughs> and for and for for Amazon, I mean, they don't. You know, for them, it was like, listen, you get anyone in that ecosystem. I just need you to come in one way or another. It doesn't matter. The second I get you in, whether it's through. Through purchasing, me, through in. commerce, through yeah. through uh, through the content. Once you're in, you're in, and I can mm-hmm. monetize you a thousand different ways. Like for for Amazon, for the amount of money that they pay for it, they're they're walking off just like, you know, ecstatic. They have to be. And <laughs> I did actually watch the film. I'm shaking my head. I was not a big fan of the, of the I new know. one. I, I haven't, like yet, I haven't yet seen I it. But like after it. listening to your review, I don't see a reason why. No, to, to, I, I to think watch they. It. Here's my my issue with the film. I think they overplayed the um like they overplayed the reminiscing of the original. There's too much nostalgia. There's way too much nostalgia. I also felt that parts of the film it was no longer about Eddie Murphy and his character is more about the son. And I'm not giving too much away by saying it, but it became like too much a story about the son and not enough about Eddie Murphy. Um, and that's the part of the reason why I didn't. I think the second half was a little bit better. The first which is was weird kind of if you think about it. If you're going to lean so hard into nostalgia, you would think you'd make it more about Eddie Murphy. Yeah. So it was. Yeah. 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 It, it, it was interesting because the first the first film was all in the context of this African basically seeing American culture through the eyes of someone that was that was not from here, and then the new one was really the opposite. Is seeing the African country where they're I forget now the name of the fictional place where they're from. But from the perspective of this young guy who is like this uh, estranged son from from Eddie Murphy, mm-hmm. so it's like get the inverse. So that thing that was kind of cool. That was a cool way to sort of twist the story. But 
I just I would love to see more of Eddie Murphy because I think he's great. I think he still has got it, and I just would love to see more of him. Just just doing doing more of his thing. I love the original. I'm afraid to watch the sequel because of everything I've heard about it. You just dropped the Rotten Tomato score, by the way, with that review by like another two points. <laughs> no, people should still watch it. But it was I'm still gl- genius. Look, I, I still. I'm think- glad they succeeded, and yet again, traditional media takes it in the eye, and Amazon, the right. Fang companies. Win again. So you could sit here, you know, uh, whatever, uh, crying about how much Amazon has a monopoly and how much all the crap that they do. And But listen, they're also super smart. That was a smart, smart move in their part. Absolutely. And they figured themselves with, the, with this audience. African-American are like, good for them. Yep. And, now and they're they took gonna start full advantage of that. Now they're buying movie theaters, and that's the next step. I'm there telling you, you they're going to own the entire value chain. All right. Well, Jesus, memorable occasion. Three for three. We agreed. We have to. We can't do that again. Was uh, won't be a courage or cringe. We'll have to rename the segment Kumbaya. Um, but I think we discussed it with some nuance, so I'm happy with that. Yeah, I think so. We have a really exciting show next week too. A little tease of the upcoming uh, of our upcoming show. We've got um, CNBC anchor, uh, the host of uh, Squawk Alley, John Fort, coming on the show next week. So make sure to listen to that. Um, and remember to subscribe, to subscribe. Hit that button now if you forgot to do it at the top. And check us out on Patreon, patreon.com backslash the diversity remix and support our work. Any last words, Jesus? Uh, no, no, no last words. Um, great topics today. A lot of nuance, especially the first one. But uh, always a fun one. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you guys very much for listening. And we'll see you again next time on another episode of TDR. If you enjoyed this episode of the diversity remix please remember first of all to subscribe and help us to spread the word tell your friends family co-workers and give us a five-star review we're available on apple and google podcasts spotify and everywhere else you get your listening fix and lastly please remember to stop by blackbrown.us the creator of this podcast and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.